Section 12 of The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. Cat Stories, Chapter 1 Pusscat. It was during the month of May, some nine years ago, that the beginning of the events that concerned Puscat took place. I was living at the time on the green outskirts of a country town, and my dining-room at the back of the house opened on to a small garden framed in brick walls some five feet high. Breakfasting there one morning, I saw a large black-and-white cat, with a sharp but serious face, observing me with studied attention. Now at the time there was an interregnum and my house was without a mistress, in the shape of a cat, and it at once struck me that I was being interviewed by this big and pleasing stranger to see if I would do. So, since there is nothing that a prospective mistress likes less than premature familiarity on the part of the householder whom she may be thinking of engaging, I took no direct notice of the cat, but continued to eat my breakfast carefully and tidily. After a short inspection, the cat quietly withdrew without once looking back, and I supposed that I was dismissed, or that she had decided, after all, to keep on her present household. In that I proved to be mistaken. She had only gone away to think about it, and next morning, and for several mornings after that, I was subjected to the same embarrassing but not unfriendly scrutiny, after which she took a stroll round the garden to see if there were any flower-beds that would do to make ambushes in, and a convenient tree or two to climb should emergencies arise. On the fourth day, as far as I remember, I committed an error— and halfway through breakfast went out into the garden, to attempt to get on more familiar terms. The cat regarded me for a few moments with pained surprise, and went away. But after I had gone in again, she decided to overlook it, for she returned to her former place and continued to observe. Next morning she made up her mind, jumped down from the wall, trotted across the grass, entered the dining-room, and, arranging herself in a great hurry round one hind leg, which she put up in the air like a flagstaff, proceeded to make her morning toilette. That, as I knew quite well, meant that she thought I would give satisfaction, and I was therefore permitted to enter upon my duties at once. So I put down a saucer of milk for her, which she very obligingly disposed of. Then she went and sat by the door and said, Ah! to show that she wished the door to be opened for her, so that she might inspect the rest of the house. So I called down the kitchen stairs, There has come a cat, who I think means to stop. Don't fuss her. In this manner, the real Puscat, though I did not know that, entered the house. Now here I must make a short defense for my share in these things. I might, by a hasty judgment, be considered to have stolen her who soon became Puscat's mamma. But anyone who has a real knowledge of cats will be aware that I did nothing of the kind. Puscat's mamma was clearly dissatisfied with her last household, and had, without the least doubt, made up her mind to leave them all and take on a fresh lot of servants and if a cat makes up her mind about anything, no power on earth except death, or permanent confinement in a room where neither doors nor windows are ever opened, will stop her taking the contemplated step. If her last, unknown household, killed her, or permanently shut her up, of course, she could not engage fresh people, but short of that they were powerless to keep her. You may cajole or bully a dog into doing what you want, but no manner of persuasion will cause a cat to deviate one hair's breadth from the course she means to pursue." If I had driven her away, she would have gone to another house, but never back to her own. 
for though we may own dogs and horses and other animals, it is a great mistake to think that we own cats. Cats employ us, and if we give satisfaction they may go so far as to adopt us. Besides, Puss-Cat's mamma did not, as it turned out, mean to stay with me altogether. She only wanted quiet lodgings for a time. So our new mistress went discreetly downstairs and inspected kitchen, scullery, and pantry. She spent some time in the scullery, so I was told, and felt rather doubtful. But she quite liked the new gas stove in the kitchen, and singed her tail at it, as nobody had told her that lunch was a-cooking. Also she found a mouse-hole below the wainscoting, which appeared to decide her, for, as we soon found out, she liked work. And she trotted upstairs again, and sat outside the drawing-room door till somebody opened it for her. I happened to be inside, with Jill, a young lady of the fox-terrier breed, and, of course, did not know that Puss-Cat's mamma was waiting. Eventually I came out and saw her sitting there. Jill saw her, too, and eagerly ran up to her, only to talk, not to fight, for Jill likes cats. But Puss-Cat's mamma did not know that, so just in case, she slapped Jill smartly first on one side of the head and then on the other. She was not angry, but only firm and strong, and wished that from the first there should be no doubt whatever about her position. Having done that, she allowed Jill to explain, which Jill did with twitchings of her stumpy tail and attitude provocative of gambles. And before many minutes were up, Puss-Cat's mamma was kind enough to play with her. Then she suddenly remembered that she had not seen the rest of the house, and went upstairs, where she remained till lunchtime. It was the manner in which she spent the first morning that gave me the key to the character of Puss-Cat's mamma, and we at once settled that her name had always been Martha. She had annexed our house, it is true, but in no grabbing or belligerent spirit, but simply because she had seen from her post on the garden wall that we wanted somebody to look after us and manage the house, and she could not help knowing how wonderful she was in all things connected with the mistress's duties. Every morning when the housemaid's step was heard on the stairs during breakfast, she had a very audible step, Martha, even in the middle of fish or milk, ran to the door, said, Ah! till it was opened, and rushed after her, sitting in each bedroom in turn to see that the slops were properly emptied and the beds well and truly made. In the middle of such supervision, sometimes came other calls upon her. The front doorbell would ring, and Martha had to hurry down to see that the door was nicely opened. Then perhaps she would catch sight of somebody digging in the garden, and she was forced to go out in this busiest time of the morning to dab at the turned-up earth in order to be sure that it was fresh. In particular, I remember the day on which the dining-room was repapered. She had to climb the step-ladder to ascertain if it was safe, and sit on the top to clean herself. Then each roll of paper had to be judged by the smell, and the paste to be touched with the end of a pink tongue. That made her sneeze, which must be the right test for paste, and she allowed it to be used. That day we lunched in the drawing-room, and it is easy to imagine how busy Martha was, for the proceeding was very irregular, and she could not tell how it would turn out. Meal-times were always busy. She had to walk in front of every dish as it was brought in, and proceed it as it was taken out. And today these duties were complicated by the necessity of going back constantly to the real dining-room to see that the paper-hangers were not idling. To make the rush more overpowering, Jill was in the garden wanting to play, and to play with Jill was one of Martha's duties. And some young hollyhocks were being put in, certain of which, for inscrutable reasons, had to be dug up again with strong backward kicks of the hind legs. She had settled that there was but one cat, which was, of course, herself. Occasionally alien heads looked over the wall, and the cries of strangers sounded. Whenever that happened, whatever the stress of housework might be, 
Martha bounded from house into garden to expel and, if possible, kill the intruder. Once from my bedroom window I saw a terrific affair. Martha had been sitting as good as gold among hairbrushes and nail scissors, showing me how to shave, when something feline moving in the garden caught her eye. Not waiting for the door to be opened, she made one leap of it out of the window into the apple tree and whirled down the trunk, even as lightning strikes and rips its way to the ground. And next moment I saw her with paw uplifted, tearing tufts of fur from the next-door tabby. She was like one of those amazing Chinese grotesques, half cat, half demon, and holy warrior. Shrill cries rent the peaceful morning air, and Martha, intoxicated with vengeance, allowed the mishandled tabby to escape. Then, with awesome face and bacchanalian eye, she ate the tufts of blood-stained fur, rolling them on her tongue and swallowing them with obvious difficulty, as if performing some terrible, antique, and cannibalistic rite and all this from a lady who was so shortly to be confined. But it was no use trying to keep Martha quiet. A second minute inspection of her house was necessary before she decided which should be the birth chamber. She spent a long time in the woodshed that morning, and we hoped that it was going to be there. She spent a long time in the bathroom, and we hoped it wasn't. Eventually she settled on the pantry, and when she had quite made up her mind we made her comfortable. Next morning three dappled little blind things were there, she ate one, for no reason as far as we could judge, but that she was afraid that Jill wanted to. So, as it was her kitten, not Jill's, she ate it. With all respect for Martha, I think that here she had mistaken her vocation. She should never have gone in for being a mother. The second kitten she lay down upon with fatal results. Then, being thoroughly disgusted with maternity, she went away and never was seen any more. She deserted the only child she had not killed. She deserted us, who had tried so hard to give satisfaction, and in the basket there was left, still blind, still uncertain whether it was worth while to live at all, Puscat. Puscat was her mother's own child from the first, though with much added. She wasted no time or strength in bewailing her orphaned condition, but took amazing quantities of milk administered on a feather. Her eyes opened, as eyes should do, on the seventh day, and she smiled at us all and spat at Jill. So Jill licked her nose with anxious care, and said quite distinctly, "'When you are a little older, I will be always ready to do whatever you like.' Jill says the same sort of thing to everybody, except the dustmen. Soon after, Puscat arose from her birth-bed and staggered across the pantry. Even this first expedition on her own feet was not made without purpose, for in spite of frequent falls she went straight up to a blind tassel, and after looking at it for a long time, tested it with a tiny paw to make sure of it thus showing, while scarcely out of the cradle, that serious purpose which marked her throughout her dear life. Her motto was, Do your work, and since she remained unmarried in spite of very many eligible offers, I think that her unnatural mother must have impressed upon her, in those few days before she deserted her, that the first duty of a cat is to look after the house, and that she herself didn't think much of maternity. Puscat inherited also, I suppose, her fixed conviction that she ought to have been, even if she was not, the only cat in the world, and she would allow no one of her own race within eyeshot of house or garden. Some of her duties, though they were always conscientiously performed, I think rather bored her, but certainly she brought to the expulsion of cats an exquisite sense of enjoyment. On the appearance of any one of her own nation, she would go hastily into ambush with twitching tail and jerking shoulder-blades, teasing and torturing herself with the postponement of that rapturous, stealthy advance across the grass, 
if the quarry was looking the other way, or the furious hurling of herself through the air if a frontal attack had to be delivered. And I often wondered that she did not betray her ambush by the rapture and sonorousness of her purring as the supreme moment approached. Jill, I am afraid, gave her a lot of worry over this duty of the expulsion of aliens, for Jill would sooner play with an alien than expel it, and her plan was to gamble up to the intruder with misplaced welcome. It is true that the effect was just the same, because a trespassing cat, seeing an alert fox terrier rapidly approaching, seldom, if ever, stops to play, so that Jill's method was really quite effective, too. But Puss-Cat had high moral purpose behind her. She wanted not only to expel, but to appall and injure, and like many moralists of our own species, she enjoyed her fulminations and onslaughts quite tremendously. She liked punishing other cats, because she was right and they were wrong, and vigorous kicks and bites would help them perhaps to understand that. But though Puss-Cat resembled her mother in the matter of the high sense of duty and moral qualities, she had what Martha lacked, that indefinable attraction which we call charm, and a great heart. She was always pleased and affectionate, and went about her duties with as near an approach to a smile as is possible for the gravest species of animal. Martha, for instance, played with Jill as a part of her duty. Puss-Cat made a pleasure out of it, and played with the ecstatic abandon of a child. Indeed, I have known her put dinner a quarter of an hour later, because she was in the lovely jungle of long grass at the end of the garden, and was preparing to give Jill an awful fright. This business of the jungle deserves mention, not because it was so remarkable in itself, but because it was so wonderful to Puss-Cat. The jungle in question was a space of some dozen yards, where in spring daffodils grew in clumps of sunshine, and fritillaries hung their speckled bells. There were peonies also planted in the grass, and a briar-rose, and an apple-tree. Nothing, as I have said, was remarkable in itself, but it was fraught with amazing possibilities to the keen imagination of Puss-Cat. At the bottom of this strip of untamed jungle the lawn began, and it was one of Puss-Cat's plans to hide at the edge of the jungle, flattening herself out till she looked like a shadow of something else. If luck served her, Jill, sooner or later, in the pursuit of interesting smells, would pass close to the edge of the jungle without seeing her. The moment Jill had gone by, Puss-Cat would stretch out a discreet paw and just touch Jill on the hindquarters. Jill, of course, had to turn round to see what this inexplicable thing meant, and on the moment Puss-Cat would fling herself into the air and descend tiger-like on Jill's back. That was the beginning of the game, and it contained more vicissitudes than a round of golf. There were ambushes and scurryings innumerable, assaults from the apple-tree, repulsions from behind the garden-roller, periods of absolute quiescence, suddenly and wildly broken by swift flanking movements through the sweet-peas, and at the end a failure of wind and limb, and Jill would lie panting on the bank, and Puss-Cat, having put off dinner, proceeded to clean herself for her evening duties. She had to be smart at dinner-time, whether we were dining alone, or whether there was a dinner-party, for she was never a tea-gown cat, and she dressed for her dinner, even if we were dining out. She was not responsible for that. What she was responsible for was to be tidy herself. Puss-Cat, without doubt, was a plain kitten, but again, like many children of our own inferior race, she grew up to be a very handsome cat. With great chic, she did not attempt colors, but was pure black and white. Across her broad, strong back there was a black saddle, but the saddle, so to speak, had slewed round and made a black band across her left side. There was an arbitrary patch of black, too, on her left cheek, a black band on her tail, and a black tip to it. Otherwise she was pure white, 
except when she put out a pink tongue below her long, snowy whiskers. But her charm, the outstanding feature of Puscat, was independent of this fascinating coloring. Martha, for instance, had been content that dishes were carried into the dining-room and subsequently carried out. That and no more was her notion of her duties towards dinner. But Puscat really began where Martha ended. Like her, she preceded the soup, but when those who were present had received their share, she always went round with loud purrings to each guest, to congratulate them and hope that they liked it. For this process, which was repeated with every dish, she had a particular walk, stepping high and treading on the tips of her toes. This congratulatory march was purely altruistic. She did not want soup herself. She was only glad that other people had got it. Then, when fish came, or bird, she would make her congratulatory tour just the same, and then sit firmly down and say she would like some too. Occasionally she favoured some particular guest with marked regard, and sometimes almost forgot her duties as mistress of the house, choosing rather to sit by her protégé and purr loudly, so that a dish would already be half-eaten before she went her round to see that everyone was pleased with his portion. Finally, when coffee was brought, she went downstairs to the kitchen and retired for the night, usually sharing Jill's basket, where they lay together in a soft, slow-breathing heap of black and white. Puscat, like the ancient Greeks, was never sick or sorry. Never sick, because of her robust and stalwart health. Never sorry, because she never did anything to be sorry for. From living with Jill, and never seeing a cat, except for those short and painful interviews which preceded expulsion from the garden, she grew to have something of the selfless affection of a dog. And when I came home after an absence, she would run out into the street to meet me, stiff-tailed, and really not attending to the debarkation of luggage, but intent only on welcoming me home. Eight busy, happy years passed thus, and then one bitter February morning, Pussycat disappeared. The weeks went on, and still there came no sign of her, and when winter had passed into May, I gave up all hopes of her return, and got a fresh cat, this time a young blue Persian with topaz-colored eyes. Another month went by, and Agag, so called from his delicate walk, had established himself in our affections, on account of his extraordinary beauty, rather than from any charm of character, when the second act of the tragedy opened. I was sitting at breakfast one morning, with the door into the garden thrown wide, and Agag was curled up on a chair in the window, for unlike Puscat and Martha, he did no housework at all, being of proud and aristocratic descent. When I saw coming slowly across the lawn, a cat that I scarcely recognized. It was lean to the point of emaciation. Its fur was disordered and dirty, but it was Puscat come home again. Then suddenly she saw me, and with a little cry of joy ran towards the open door. Then she saw Agag, and weak and thin as she was, she woke at once to her old sense of duty, and bounded on to his chair. Never before in her time had a cat got right into the house, and such a thing she felt determined should not occur again. Round the room and out into the garden raged the battle before I could separate them, Puscat inspired by her sense of duty. Agag angry and astonished at this assault of a mere gutter-cat in his own house. At last I got hold of Puscat and took her up in my arms, while Agag cursed and swore in justifiable indignation. For how could he tell that this was Puscat? They never fought again, but it was a miserable fortnight that followed, and all the misery was poor Puscat's. Agag, in spite of his beauty, had no heart, and did not mind how many cats I kept, so long as they did not molest him, or usurp his food or his cushion. But Puscat, 
though she understood that for some inscrutable reason she had to share her house with Agag and not fight him, was a creature of strong affections, and her poor little soul was torn with agonies of jealousy. Jill, it is true, who was always treated with contemptuous unconsciousness by Agag, was certainly pleased to see her friend again, and had not forgotten her. But Puscat wanted so much more than Jill could give her. She took on her old duties at once, but often when she escorted the fish into the dining-room, and found Agag asleep on his chair, she would be literally unable to go through with them, and would sit in a corner by herself, looking miserably and uncomprehendingly at me. Then perhaps the smell of fish would wake up Agag, and he would stretch himself and stand for a moment with superbly arched back on his chair, before he jumped down, and with loud purrings rubbed himself against the legs of my chair to betoken his desire for food, or even would jump up onto my knees. That was the worst of all for Puscat, and she would often sit all dinner through in her remote corner, refusing food, and unable to take her eyes off the object of her jealousy. While Agag was present, no amount of caresses or attentions offered to her would console her, so that, when Agag had eaten, we usually turned him out of the room. Then for a little while Puscat had respite from her Promethean vulture. She would go her rounds again to see that everybody was pleased, and escort fresh dishes in with high-stepping walk and erect tail. We hoped, foolishly perhaps, that in course of time the two would become friends, else I think I should have at once tried to find another home for Agag. But indeed, short of that, we did all we could do, lavishing attentions on dear Puscat, and trying to make her feel, which indeed was true, that we all loved her, and only liked and admired Agag. But while we still hoped, Puscat had had more than she could bear, and once again she disappeared. Jill missed her for a little while, Agag not at all. But the rest of us miss her still. End of section 12